0: back season two of destiny benders are you excited jess
1: i'm excited we're going to be speaking with some inspiring international educators and learning how they got to where they are today But in addition, this autumn, Girish and I will be attending a couple of international education events. So look out for us. We're going to be recording the podcast on location and speaking with you all to find out what motivated you to work in international education.
0: So I can't wait to see what kind of guests we line up this year. I think we're going to have some really, really cool guests. So uh, I hope you had a nice break. I enjoyed it. I was traveling a little bit. How was yours?
1: It was really good, thanks. We spent a couple of weeks in Switzerland seeing friends and family and the boys getting to know the country a lot better. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun.
0: Exciting. Cool. Well, let's get started.
1: All right. Welcome back to season two of Destiny Benders, the podcast for international educators. We have as our guest today for episode one of season two, Francisco Marmolejo, who is the higher education president at the Cutter Foundation. Francisco, thank you so much for agreeing to join us on the podcast today.
2: It is a real pleasure uh, being able to participate today. Jessica.
0: Welcome, Francisco. We're excited to chat with you today. Uh, I hope uh, we get to hear a lot about your story, your journey, et cetera. So let's get started right at the beginning. How did you get into international education?
2: <laughs> well, thank you, Giddish. I, I think uh, like most of us involved in the field of international education, I'm sure that you have here many times, I got involved in international education by accident and, uh, and in some way, of course, by passion and interest, of course. But the circumstances that led to my involvement in international education uh, basically were circumstantial, but like in many cases. In my particular situation, let me tell you, I'm from Mexico. I'm from a small town in Mexico, Ojuelos, uh, which is the capital of the world. And uh, when I was living in Ojuelos, for me, uh, as a kid, being able to go out of my zone of comfort was traveling to the city. And the city is about 80 kilometers from, from uh, Ojuelos, is San Luis Potosí. So for me, that that was, in, in a way, I always tried to connect that to the beginning of my connection to international education. As a kid, being part of a big family, I remember learning with my mother about the capitals of the world, using a nata Mundi that still, it is in my parents' house, in which, by the way, today, when I take a look into that, I see that, you know, almost uh, six decades after, many countries that were in this that mapa mundi don't exist anymore, and vice versa. There were countries that were there that no longer are, uh, no longer are in place. So, anyways, that that was my passion, my interest for for the world. In fact, when I was a kid, I used to say that I will study geography, that I will become a ge- geographer which it didn't work. It didn't happen. But uh, but that was the beginning. Now, years later, you know, many years later, after I finished my college, I started working at a university in Mexico while I was doing my doctoral studies in Mexico City. I uh, I got in touch with uh, visitors from other universities, in this case, from University of Arizona in the U.S. At that time, I didn't speak English. I still I don't. I I speak Spanglish and then, uh, you know, I remember interacting with those faculty members and then talking about the possibility of collaboration. And I was very excited about it. I remember that I organized my first trip to the United States to visit those universities. Since I didn't speak English, I was uh, such an adventure for me. So I remember I got sick when I was on my way to that because I, I didn't know what to say and what to learn, what to speak, et cetera, anyways. I managed to survive and I discovered at that time, the beauty, the benefits of uh, being uncomfortable, being in a place in which uh, you need to uh, sort of be aware of others to to exercise your capacity of otherness and uh, to be very open-minded about different perspectives. And then that's, that's when I started to work directly in the field of international education. I remember just to finish, My first uh, uh, NAFSA meeting uh, that that happened in San Diego, California. I remember being there, probably barely able to understand a third of what it was being said, but with a lot of interest in making connections. And then, uh, again, that was the beginning of my journey on international education that since that time, it has not stopped.
0: And- so wonderfully put. Uh, I mean, the whole idea of the beauty of being uncomfortable is such a cool <laughs> concept to kind of wrap your head around. Before we get into it, I'm sorry, Jess, I want to kind of dig in a little bit, right? So you talked about growing up in a small town or a small city in Mexico, and then your PhD program, fill in the gap a little bit. You went to high school, then what did you do in college? What were you thinking you're gonna be when you grew up when you're in college, yeah. etc.? So you got to your PhD.
2: Well, you know, I I, I think um, like many many uh, individuals, you know, when I was a teenager, I didn't know what I was going to be. I, again, if I go, I, I make a list of all the professionals that I was going to choose. Again, I went from geographer to philosopher to engineer to a lawyer, and uh, and again very confused because I was excited about too many things. I did, uh, um, uh, you know, back in those years in my town, there was only elementary school. So I was able to study my town only my first six years of education. And then I remember a uh, a missionary who came to the town and he went there to talk about the fact that if you come with us, you study with us, then eventually you will be in Africa uh, as a missionary working in hospitals. And I was so excited. So I was able to convince my parents with a lot of sacrifice to send me to the seminary. So I went there to the seminary for two of my three years of secondary education in another city, Leon. And, uh, and then after those two years, I was kicked out from the school. They said, you know, this guy is not material to be a priest. Uh, so get out of here, I finished my secondary school and then I moved to the city, San Luis Potosí, for my high school and my uh, university studies, and then after that, I did my master's degree at the University of Ar- uh, San Luis Potosí. That's when I met my wife, my my classmate, and uh, and then later I decided to pursue my studies at the National University of Mexico, my doctoral studies, and that's when I moved to to the big city, to to the to the capital of the country. Then after that, you know, it's uh, once I was working at the University of the Americas. That's when I met the, the peers from the U.S. and then uh, and then I. Later uh, moved to the United States and then my journey continued. I have been very privileged to be, you know, working in different countries, living in different countries, visiting almost a hundred countries now and uh, learning about the higher education systems in many parts of the world. Amazing and very interesting and never boring uh, journey for me.
1: I, I want to go back to what Girish actually said. I love that phrase. The beauty and the benefits of being uncomfortable, the way you said that was fantastic because I feel that as well. And that's what keeps me in international education having discovered that. Can you kind of um, expound a little bit that on that a little bit more and tell us the beauty and the benefits of being uncomfortable and what situations have you been in where you've been uncomfortable experiencing the other and it's really kind of changed you in some way?
2: Well, too many, I can tell you, yes. Uh, you know, I remember in, in that first trip that I was telling you, I went to Mexico uh, to the U.S., I remember that I went to a restaurant, not speaking well English, I remember that I was asking for a soap instead of soup. Okay. I remember um, practicing a lot with a, a friend in Mexico, he was a faculty member of the university, and they, I said, you know, I will go to the States, you need to tell me you don't know what to do, and then uh, my wife, she's very good at languages. And remember that with my wife and also with my friend, I was learning, uh, you know, memorizing. I might say a very short speech about the University of the Americas where I used to work. So I remember that I memorized that, and uh, I was at the meeting uh, then at the University of Arizona with faculty members and other people there. And they were speaking English, I was barely able to understand what they were talking about. And then suddenly, one of them turns uh, back to me and then says, "Well, you know, Francisco, you can explain that." And I, I thought of myself, well, what do I explain? I have no clue what they are talking about." So the only thing that I was able to remember was my speech. So I start saying, "Well, yeah, the University of Americas, blah, blah blah, et etc, et etc. And then, you know, at the end of the day, every, at the end of the, my speech, I remember that he looked at me and, you know, he said something like, uh, oh, uh, yeah, that's great. Thank you. Uh, like, uh, and then after that, what did you ask me? And they say, well, you know, don't worry, uh, don't worry. But I asked you, was not exactly that but What you already provided us information was the good information. Thank you very much. So, um, you know, this is just one example of the of the beauty of uh, feeling uncomfortable. Um, many more things. Uh, you know, I, the five years that I lived in India, working at the World Bank as, uh, as the lead higher education specialist for South Asia, I remember many times being with students in nowhere in India, whatever place in in, in one of the very interesting uh, multi-India that existed. And then interacting with students and then uh, chatting with the students and then, you know, asking a, a question about where do you think I come from? So students start telling you the most strange things, you know, uh, you know like I remember one time they told me, you, it looks like you come from Japan or from Australia. And then I used to tell them, no, I come from Mexico. And I see the face of men by saying, where is Mexico? I have no idea where is Mexico. So I used to be part of this level of, Comfort, you know, or or being out of your zone of uh, safety, I might say, safety zone. I uh, I remember, you know, a good example of these analogies is that I usually consider being born in a country which is among, you know, it's among the ten largest countries in the world in terms of population, Mexico. But when I was living in India, I used to refer myself as coming from a small country. And why? Well, because. There are some states in India, which the population is three times the population of Mexico. So I needed to be humble in recognizing again the beauty of the difference, the otherness, and the capacity to see yourself in the lenses of uh, or through the lenses of the other ones. So those those are just a few of the examples, but there are many that I can share.
0: <laughs> I'm laughing so hard. <laughs> i'm I'm still curious what the professor asked you to describe it. Did you ever find out? No, you know, it was
2: a conversation again about collaboration and okay. uh, opportunities for engagement between the two universities and stuff like that.
0: Oh, interesting, interesting. But anyway, I want to talk a little bit about what you just kind of ended there about, you know, the otherness and then, you know, all of the, the, the concepts that you're talking about that I'm assuming you incorporate that into your day-to-day work. So tell us a little bit more about your work. I mean, I know you're at Qatar Foundation now, so maybe tell us a little bit more about your role there, what you're trying to do, and how all of your 40 years of learning you're bringing into that role. And then I'm sure we want to talk a little bit more about where you see the future going. But
2: Well, you know, I appreciate that question because the question is precisely about today and the future. Why? Because you know, Qatar Foundation is, a, is such a unique um, ecosystem, which, to be honest with you, I have not seen any comparable one in the world for a variety of reasons. You know, uh, 25 years ago, uh, you know, first of all, let's let's uh, be mindful of the fact that Qatar is a country younger than me, right? So to begin with, so it's a, it's a work in progress as a country. And 25 years ago, you know, Sheikha uh, Moza bin Nasser, which is the chairperson of Qatar Foundation, you know, the patron and the benefactor and and the vision behind Qatar Foundation, she and and the father, Emir, had the vision about, you know, how to transition the economy and society towards a knowledge-based economy and society. And the way they saw that was by creating an entity, not a government entity, but with the flexibility of becoming a private organization that would be the place to disrupt, to create this enabling uh, sort of environment in which new ideas could spark. The the concept of Qatar Foundation is based on three pillars. Uh, The idea of unlocking human potential based on research, education, and community development. So in order to do that, Qatar Foundation became a very large ecosystem of more than 50 different organizations, all of them located in a beautiful place, which is called Education City in Qatar. And in Education City in Qatar, we have from kindergarten to doctoral education. At the higher education level, there are eight universities as part of the ecosystem of Education City. Six of them are American universities that had been in, in Qatar for, you know, some of them for more than 20 years. Very well-known, recognized universities from the U.S. Um, Virginia Commonwealth University, Texas A&M University, Georgetown University, Carnegie Mellon, Northwestern University, Cornell University, all of those institutions in conjunction with our own home-ground university, which is uh, Hamad Ming Khalifa University, and also the School of Higher Studies of uh, Paris, HSE, all of them within one ecosystem working together in uh, in what we refer to as our multiversity approach our multiversity ecosystem so we have a very interesting situation here in which you have institutions that usually compete in this case for instance in the United States but here they are forced to collaborate in order to compete which changes completely the mindset of those institutions. So for instance, you have a student who uh, is, uh, you know, enrolled in Georgetown University, but she or he can take a course at Texas A&M University or at uh, Northwestern University without the need to do all the bureaucracies and all this recognition of credits and, and other things. In other words, and also we have students from more than 120 countries. So we have, again, a unique global ecosystem in one single place, with faculty members from all over the world, and um, uh, you know, uh, languages and perspectives and opinions and ideas. Again, a, a microcosmos, if you want, of, of the world in, in one single place, which is Education City. And here is where we are disrupting many of those traditional uh, assumptions of, uh, of higher education. And so my role as president of higher education is to facilitate to enable the coordination the collaboration and the mutual work of those uh, of those institutions to foster for more uh, you know uh, faculty fo- to faculty collaboration between the different institutions joint academic programs you know joint courses uh, community development activities so it's make, making of the university what all of our dream about which is the lively place that it is uh, you know both the center and the periphery of the community as well. And that is also a window to the world, but at the same time, a, a true connection to the community. The idea of preparing uh, students you know, of today, graduates of tomorrow as globally aware citizens, but locally committed um, individuals, it is something that we are working at, sort of uh, actively engage uh, in our higher education community here. So that's why, sorry for the long explanation, That's why we talk about what we do today in connection to what we believe is and should be the future of uh, of higher education. So our students, um, you know, are subject to a variety of things. Uh, uh, We have a program just to give you an idea about um, Universal Skills Passport, which basically complements the preparation of the students. Uh, with the, uh, you know, in addition to the regular curriculum with many other acquisition of other skills that are going to be needed for the future. You know, a number of things that are precisely aimed at creating an environment in which students have a personalized, relevant, attractive, and um, high quality education.
1: That sounds absolutely amazing. Do you think that this model could be replicated? elsewhere or should be? Is it even possible? You know, is it somewhere like Qatar where this is possible but you couldn't actually do that in another location or fewer uh, places?
2: You know, the, the principles of the idea of the need that universities should break their silos. Should uh, cross the aisle and collaborate with other institutions are not new. Of uh, you know, it is not an invention of Qatar Foundation. There are very interesting examples in other parts of the world. You know, the Five Colleges Consortium in the United States, for instance, bringing together um, you know one public and four private institutions, uh, uh, which also do that type of uh, collaboration, is a good example. The Claremont uh, Consortium in California even the the consortium of universities in washington dc uh it's an it's a, it's another example and you go outside of the united states you find that also in other countries as well even you can see now something similar happened in the case of france as you know in paris where they a number of different institutions are coming together in order to create those type of uh, disruptions and then to create new things based on that so the principle of the idea of Clustering either physically or organically or virtually institutions. It is something that, in my opinion, is fundamental if we are thinking about way to address the needs uh, of, of the future. You know, I can tell you that I truly believe that with the traditional model of higher education that we have had for years, we won't be able to cope with the needs of the future in our societies. Uh, it is just impossible. It is just impossible. Let me give you one example. In the case of India, considering the the demographics of the country, you know, as a way to not to increase, but just to come with the same percentage of access to higher education of the college cohort. India has been building 6.8 higher education institutions per day, including Saturdays and Sundays for the last 10 years. And that only helps to continue with the same access rate that they have for the next 15 years. So if we think about the traditional model, there is no capacity by just creating more universities for the sake of creating more universities. So we need to change that traditional approach. And one of the ways to do that, I don't think it is the only one, but one of the ways to do that is to develop more synergies among the players, among the institutions with the idea that one plus one is more than two.
0: Yeah, Francisco, brilliant, right? I completely agree with you 100%. Principally, yeah, the collaboration to compete and all of that is is important. But how do you reconcile that, or how do how do institutions reconcile that with um, the current state of this their own survival based on revenues and the need for money to support the uh, an ongoing operations? And that's where the competition becomes so intense for that student that's paying the fee. So collaboration takes a back seat. Because the first and primary objective or motivation, or at least sometimes it feels like, is to get that dollar coming mm-hmm. in. So, mm-hmm. how do you reconcile all of these? Particularly, I mean, I'm speaking from the American perspective, yeah. but you're absolutely right about India. We can do a whole podcast about India, but talk <laughs> to me about that, or tell us what you think should be happening or what you see happening.
2: Well, you know, first of all, I don't think, Gritish, uh, that there are magic formulas. Uh, magic formulas. Uh, there are, you know whoever may come and tell you a relatively simple recipe for that most likely she or he is going to be wrong because the reality is it's very complex of course and and the complexity of course uh, has many many complications associated with that but however i might say that there are constructs that we have made of higher education that i think it is time for us to challenge them uh, you know Many times, uh, you know very well in our higher education institutions, we have too many things that it is always important to question, do we really need this? Do we really are enriching the educational experience, which is at the end of the day, the main goal of our higher education institutions? Or those are some aggregations into, into, into that beautiful building, which is the university. Which are not adding too much value, and of course, that is not an easy conversation because everybody has some vested interest on things, and but somebody has to have the courage to have those type of conversations. That's the first thing. The second thing, which is referred to the to the one plus one equals more than two. Of course, we are so busy in our uh, in, in our survival race, if you want. That we don't realize that at the same time we are cannibalizing each other. And by doing that, we are missing the point about the opportunities that may emerge if we go beyond the conventional in many ways. And certainly that is another thing that, of course, somebody has to push the envelope and say, you know, we need to address these problems as the only way to really sort of recognize that we have a problem but also that we have a solution. And the third point that in my opinion is fundamental, we see that in our microcosmos, which is Education City at Qatar Foundation, but there is a very clear role of incentives and uh, that needs to be on the right time, in the right place and for the right purpose. So if you put together the right incentives on the timely matter, people and institutions react to them or follow them, or go advance to them. But if you have the incentives on the wrong place, of course, again, human behavior is replicated into institutional behavior. Let me give you one example. When we talk about productivity and relevance of the work of our faculty members, where do we put the incentives traditionally? Well, we put the incentives in the traditional way to measure our productivity, which is a paper, an article, and that um, you and I know and everybody knows that uh, most of the papers, nobody reads them and only ourselves. But if you have a faculty member who wants to do public service, community work, international engagement, service learning at the international level, usually are incentives for that? Unfortunately, not. In fact, many of the work of our faculty members in doing that has to be done you know by sacrificing the time that they have to dedicate to work towards the paper towards the tenure towards the you know all the kind of incentives that traditionally are in place in our higher education institutions so you know it's 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 part of the problem we need to recognize we have a problem but also we need to recognize we have the solution and in my opinion the solution is You know, among other things, collaboration. And I think it is very important to clarify that there is a big difference between cooperation and collaboration. Because cooperation means I'm operating on the things that I'm doing, you are operating in the things you are doing, and we just kind of connect. While collaboration is that we are elaborating, we are creating, we are designing something new together, connecting or matching my weaknesses with your strengths and vice versa, and identifying what are the common areas of opportunity and common areas of interest where we can complement each other. And this is something that I have done all my life in higher education and all my life in international education. And uh, and I truly believe that, you know, this is a way to, to do, it. it's not the only one, but I truly believe that this is a way to really move the needle and then just to go beyond the conventional.
1: I want to change tack a little bit and go back to something you said um, from when you were a boy and you were sent to a seminary and you got kicked out. <laughs> you said you were kicked out of the seminary. That that act or that moment changed your life, right? Because it sent you on a different path. And our podcast, as I had explained, is called Destiny Benders. And we like to talk about people um, having changed Someone's life or changed lives, um, either by an act or through what they do as their career. I'm imagining that you, throughout your career, have touched many lives, and you've certainly mentioned a number of really big organizations that you've worked for that are in the business of changing lives and 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 helping. Can you think of someone? who has really had an impact on you and bent your destiny or sent you off on a different trajectory than you might have aside from getting kicked out of the seminary?
2: <laughs> well I have many I have many stories about the, uh, being kicked out in our <laughs> which believe it or not has been very important turning points in my life. But no let, let me uh, let me tell you about uh, one significant event that changed my my life especially in the field of international education. Um, working at the University of the Americas in Mexico, I mentioned to you I, that I was like uh, probably about 29, 30 years old, I believe. And uh, so I was asked by my president. I was privileged to serve uh, with President Margarita Gomez Palacio. She was the first woman president of a university in Mexico. And I remember that she asked me to go to a to a conference in Guadalajara. Another city. Back in those years, the idea of international education was something very, very uh, remote. Still in Mexico. So, anyways, she said, "You know, I cannot go to this conference, which is organized by a university there. Why don't you go on my behalf?" Say, "Okay, happy to be there." That was my state. I sit down in the in the in the bus that it was taking us from the hotel to the conference. There was a woman sitting one side of me, American, and uh, she was very nervous. And then. Uh, uh, you know, so I introduced myself and then, you know, she said, I'm Madeline Green. I am the vice president of uh, international initiatives of the American Council on Education. And I'm very nervous because I will speak in Spanish and I don't speak Spanish very well. So could you please tell me how do I say this in Spanish? Uh, she goes to the we go to the conference. She speaks. I was just in the audience. She speaks at the conference. Uh, she does very well with her Spanish speaking uh, speech. Uh, which made also very happy Mexicans because we're hitting somebody from the U.S. speaking Spanish, not English. And then uh, after her presentation, I should confess to you that the other sessions were relatively boring. And she was going to leave a day, a day after, so she said to me, uh, "Francisco, I, I will go tomorrow, and I, I'm here with my sister, and uh, I we wanted to see a little bit of the city before we go back to uh, to to the states." And I said, let's forget about the conference. I would take you to downtown the city of Guadalajara, which is, by the way, a beautiful city. So we went there. I was serving as a um, a touristic guide, if you want, explaining to them things about downtown city, probably lying a lot about things that I didn't know, but I just was acting like if I knew. But anyways, I remember that at the lunch, she said to me, Francisco, there is... A program in the United States, which is the American Council on Education Fellows Program, the ACE Fellowship. And um, you are vice president of your university, you are a young academician, et cetera. Uh, why don't you consider applying to that? She says, this is a program that has been in place for a number of years in the US. We never have had someone from Mexico. Why don't you apply? You know, it's I cannot guarantee you anything because it is a very peer, strict review process. But it looks like it might be interesting. So anyways, to make the story short, I applied to the program. And then I went through the process. I remember the interviews, et cetera, et cetera. point in my life really changed a lot my perspectives because it gave me the opportunity for one year to live inside a university in the United States. I never studied in the U.S. All my studies were in Mexico to perfect my English to understand the, the, the nuances of the management of the higher education institutions, to know peers, many of them who later became presidents of other universities, part of the AC fellows class, and to understand a little bit more about the complexities of the higher education system in the US. At that time, for instance, if somebody will tell me about a community college, I would think that it was a, a Catholic elementary college in Mexico, because we use the term college in reference to schools. To elementary schools. So anyways, um, that was an amazing year to learn about higher education and also to become much more confident about next steps in my life. After the year, I was going to go back to Mexico, but there's what happened. I was fired from the university that I was working in and uh, in the middle of my fellowship. So I was going to return to Mexico and I was fired because my president was fired because it was a lot, you know, political things happening there. And uh, just to make the story short, um, a, a month before I was going to be back to Mexico, I had a call from University of Arizona, the same that I visited years before. And they said, hey, Francisco, we have this program with some funding from Ford Foundation. We have money for six months of salary of someone to put together some kind of a collaboration between U.S. and Mexican universities. And we think that probably you might be someone who helped us. Guess what? We moved from Massachusetts to Arizona and that six months project on US-Mexico Higher Education Collaboration became the consortium for North American Higher Education Collaboration, which I run for um, 15 years. Um, So it became a long-term adventure for my family, for myself and for my involvement in international education. So like that, I can tell you many more, there is no time, but the older um, um, we become, the more of those things are accumulated in our experience.
0: What an amazing story that is. Yeah, absolutely. Just in that same vein, I know Jessica alluded to it. Can you think of maybe one example of somebody who you've had the pleasure of working with or guiding in all of your years, that you know that you being a part of their life completely changed their life their trajectory.
2: Oh my God. Uh, I think it will be difficult to remember someone at this point in particular. I know about many colleagues who, with which I have had the privilege of interacting with or mentoring them or just giving them advice or suggestions or ideas that, uh, you know, now are on the, on the work of either international education or other activities. Uh, it would be difficult to to uh, to make a point about uh, someone in particular. But you know, what is interesting is that many times you do something that apparently has no importance, but for others may have. Uh, you know, this is I'm sure that. Uh, you know, Madeline Green uh, became a very good friend uh, after those years, and we joke about that time in which we connected serendipity, um, a coincidence, yeah. uh, in in the transportation to the conference. I remember recently I was uh, in Mexico uh, in an event in which kindly the University of Colima awarded me a, a recognition, not because what I have done, but because I'm older. And um, and uh, I remember that the person who made the introduction, uh, Genoveva, which is the director of uh, international programs at the university, a very well-recognized uh, international educator and scholar in Mexico, she mentioned that when she met me, it was in a conference, one of those conferences of higher education that uh, I used to organize when I was director of CONAHEC, And then she mentioned that she approached me at that conference and uh, she said, Francisco, I'm new on this field of international education. I just was appointed uh, you know, head of international programs and I really would like for you, if you can help me and give me some ideas. And of course I didn't remember until she was talking about and she says, you know, that Francisco gave me some ideas that eventually serve uh, for me to, to, you know, to inform my work. And uh, so it, again, she was very grateful Making that connection, but I'm sure that whatever I said to her was kind of a normal thing. But for her at that time, in the special circumstances in which she was working on, it became much more meaningful than what I could imagine. So, like that, I think that happens many times. You know, I'm very grateful that uh, that, uh, I have had the privilege of interacting with a lot of people in, you know, all over the world in the field of education with which immediately we find this connection. And this opportunity to learn from each other and to enrich each other uh, by, by just chatting or exchanging perspectives.
1: Your comment is very apt because we have mentioned it on a number of times with other guests on the podcast where you can't think of a single person because everything we do in every day it touches somebody in some way. So we always, I personally feel like we always have to be mindful of any interaction we have at any point, because we are touching another person that can have long reaching impact that we is, have no way of knowing anything about.
2: It is correct. It is absolutely correct. You know, I keep in touch, for instance, with uh, some of my students, when I was a faculty member at the University of San Luis Potosí, 1981-82, which means you can imagine some of them are already retiring, and uh, it, you know it's uh, I, and I'm so pleased to to get in touch with them to learn about their lives, their you know uh, uh, trajectories, and and also again sometimes they remember things that of course mm-hmm. I don't remember of uh, something <laughs> that happened, an anecdote or something that happened that. Again, that was part of life, but I'm I'm extremely pleased to do, and I think that's that's the beauty again of of, of human nature, and, and the beauty of our work in international education. That's uh, we have a great privilege of interacting with people from completely different backgrounds, domains, uh, experiences, interests, and that. Uh, but at the end of the day, we always find a very similar essence in all of them, and you know, at the end of the day, people are. Good people looking for better opportunities, looking for better life for them, themselves, their families, their community. And that's where we find affinities all over the place.
0: Absolutely, hundred percent. We we could talk for hours, but I know uh, we asked you for an hour of your time. So as we always do, Francisco, we try to wrap up our podcast recordings with some more lighter note conversations. So we ask a quick fire questions, as we call it. Uh, my first one is: I'm really curious. What did you do at the seminary that kicked you? That got you kicked out? <laughs> like maybe one, I'm sure there's several, but maybe you can tell us like one thing that you did.
2: There are there were too many that probably don't deserve a good uh, podcast uh, transmission but no you know what I uh, probably I was challenging some of the things that I that I was learning and some of the things that were happening there that I didn't feel that they were okay in terms of uh, sort of having a wider exposure to the world Uh, it's uh, I kind of joke saying that I was kicked out you know I I remember that I was like I didn't want to continue there. So I remember that my, my father, when we went there to pick me up uh, in order to take me back to home. And then he used to say, Francisco, so what happened with your desires to become, you know, priest and stuff like that. And I, I used to tell him, "Uh, you know, that is like a light is like a little light that is too far in the horizon that, you know, I, I don't think that I will be able to reach it. You know, I was 11 years old, 11 and 12 years old. So uh, for me being out of my family and uh, you know and then learning to survive in an environment with all their kids um you know it's, it's it's rough at that age and i and it helped me also to help self-discipline and desire to learn more things in life and so anyways it was a very positive experience but again yeah. the only thing is that i don't think that it was for me
1: my quick fire question for you you said you've traveled to over a hundred different countries throughout a your...
2: little bit I, I still don't have the the second, it's a like ninety something at this point. I'm ninety something prepared. countries
1: in your your long yeah. and storied career. Um, can you tell us about perhaps a hobby or a pastime or a food or something that you picked up along the way in one of those many different countries? Something that you really you were introduced to. In your travels, and you latched onto because you were like, "I love this. This is amazing," and you've taken it on through the rest of your your life with you.
2: You know, it's interesting because there are many things happen. You know, when we lived in France, I learned about petanka, You know that beautiful sport of uh, that people very ancient sport that people play just to have fun as a family. You know, we kept our petanka and then we play that. You know, when we have a chance as a family, just a good example. Living in India, we have the privilege that uh, one of our kids, before we moved to India, he got in love with a girl from India, and then they married. And then we were able to experience, you know, at full capacity, the, the, the hospitality and the uh, grandiose type of things of what India does with the uh, weddings and, you know, all those type of things, but also life in India, food in India, etc. Here in Qatar, there are also beautiful and very interesting things that um, that we are learning on a day-to-day basis about Arabic, for instance. I didn't know that about 30% of Spanish is Arabic. Until mm-hmm. you start learning Arabic, you find the connection of the words and you say, wow, what an amazing uh, sort of influences of cultures that exist in the world that we don't even pay attention to. So there are many in life. I can tell you that uh, because people usually ask me when when they know about the case of the traveling to many countries, they say, what is the most interesting country that you have been there? And I say all the time, I say, you know, the best country is the country where I live. And um, that could be Mexico, the US, Canada, France, India, yeah. you know, Qatar, you know, it's basically, you always have to travel and to live with the attitude that the best place and the best time in your life and the and the best location where you are is is precisely that where, you, where are. you are that's the only way that you really have to enjoy and not to suffer the beauty of the opportunity to be sort of an international nomad
0: yeah Well, I think we should probably wrap it on that. No, that was beautifully put. I absolutely agree with you. Uh, Thank you so much for taking time. I know it's evening. It's coming up on your weekend in Qatar.
2: Thank you very much to both of you. I also have enjoyed um, this opportunity to to bring together some memories and also to talk about everything and nothing at the same time.